0: Bibles and open up to the book of Joshua, and uh, kids can be dismissed for Children's Church as well. Book of Joshua, everyone get your hands on a copy of God's Word. If you don't have one with you, there's some in the pews in front of you. Um, Grab one of those, and uh, those of you online with us as well, get your Bibles, turn to the book of Joshua. Chapter 3 is where we're going to start, Joshua chapter 3. And we're actually going to look at chapters three through five today as we continue our series through the book of Joshua. And, um, as I was thinking, as I was uh, thinking about this and preparing uh, for today's uh, time in God's Word, I was immediately reminded of a conversation I I had with a missionary when I was in Bible college. Uh, One of our uh, uh, classes specifically, uh, had us do an assignment where we had to interview someone who was in global missions work. And each year, Moody Bible Institute puts on what's called Missions Conference, which is a week-long conference specifically devoted just to uh, missions work. And so we would have the privilege of sitting with these uh, individuals who... Most people around the world or in the church don't even really know about but they're faithfully proclaiming the gospel in parts of the world where others aren't And uh, I sat down. I remember sitting down in the dining hall At moody Bible Institute and having a conversation uh, With this guy who had been in missions his whole life And uh, well over 30 years he had been on the mission field And uh, we talked about missions and we had several specific questions we had to ask uh, each missionary that we interviewed, but at the end of all of that, I remember asking him as a, a young man who was striving to go into full-time ministry. What counsel or advice would you give to me as I step into this journey? Um, unknowing what will come unknowing what the Lord is going to do and uh, he gave me three words. He said stones mile markers and fences and I kind of looked puzzled because he paused there and I'm thinking, is that it? And I remember him kind of smirking and saying, uh, explaining this to me. And it's stuck with me ever since. He said, throughout your life, you're going to have instances where God shows up in powerful ways. Both in the people you minister to and in your own life. And when that happens, you need to be faithful to set up stones that when you go back to those things you're reminded of the faithfulness of the one you serve he said mile markers along the way you're going to have points that help you to navigate or see where you're at on this journey of becoming more like Jesus and you need to be careful to make sure you kind of have an idea where you're at so that you don't convince yourself that you have reached the end of your journey And fences, he said, along the way you're going to be tempted to veer off course at any given time. So you need to make sure you establish fences or guardrails along the way so that no matter what you do or how you go about it, you're doing it according to God's trajectory and God's way rather than your own. Now, that in and of itself could be our message for today. Because there's so much practical application there. There's so much that we can grab hold of and go, yes, this is what I need reminded of. But we're going to take it a step further because every one of these elements is in our narrative story of Joshua today. And so as we walk through this, I want you to be looking for these elements. I want you to be looking for the specific instruction God gives to His people in order that they would be reminded of who He is. Reminded of His faithfulness generation after generation. I want you to look for the specific boundaries that God gives to His people to say this is how you will be certain not to veer off course. And some of you may reflect upon as we opened up and started in Joshua chapter 1 and God's specific instruction to Joshua to say, don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. You need to meditate on it. You need to be careful to do everything written in it because then and only then will you have good success. I want you to look for these elements in our story today and we're going to walk through chapters 3 through 5. We're going to take some bits and pieces here. And then we're going to we're going to seek to apply this practically and answer the question, how does this influence or how should this influence our behavior as the church in Fulton County, Illinois, right here today? Now, to bring you up to speed, for those of you who may not have been with us or you're watching with us and you're going, I don't even know what Joshua is. I don't know what it's about. Well, this is the the narrative in the midst of a bigger narrative, which is the narrative of Scripture as a whole. And where we have walked thus far is from the book of Genesis and a man named Abraham all the way to an established nation of Israel who has not obeyed the Lord as they were supposed to. And so in previous weeks as we've led up to this, we recognize that the nation of Israel ended up wandering in the desert for 40 years because a generation of people were not faithful to keep the commands of the Lord and trust Him to enter into the promised land. And now they're right on the bank of the Jordan, just about to cross into this promised land that for years and years and years the people have been longing for the fulfillment of this covenant promise that God made with their ancestor Abraham. So this brings us to where we are today. We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 3. I encourage you to follow along with me as we engage in this story Today says, then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant And went before the people. Keep your eyes on the ark. Now, a logical question for us to ask here is what is the significance of this ark, this ark of the covenant? Is this talking about Noah's ark? No, it's not. But that would be a logical explanation if we don't know the narrative of Scripture, right? The Ark of the Covenant, more specifically, was instructed to be built by God a specific way, and it housed three specific elements. It housed the staff of Aaron. It housed the tablets on which God gave the law to Moses. And it housed a jar with manna, the bread from heaven that the Lord provided for His people in the desert. More specifically, the Ark of the Covenant was the visual dwelling place of God. That is, the ark was to go before the people, and when they camped, the ark was to remain in the midst of the people, and it was symbolic and very clearly meant to establish this is where the God of the universe dwells among you. Power and authority. In fact, as we read, continue into the later parts of the Old Testament, we find that they would take the ark into battle with them because it meant the Lord was with them. At one point in the narrative, the ark is stolen. And it's a big deal. Why? Because this represents the very presence of God among the people. So there's significance here in the narrative when he... He says, the ark will go out. And as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the priest, then and only then you shall set out from your place and follow it. But did you notice something else significant here? Look at the distance. Now, 2,000 cubits, to put it in perspective, a cubit is about 18 inches. 2,000 cubits is 3,000 feet. Just shy of a mile. So here they are, camped in the wilderness, just shy of the promised land. And the command is, the ark will go before you. You're to stay back 3,000 feet. Why? Because you have not gone this way before. You do not know the way. Now it's not difficult to see the practical application of this in any setting when we consider... Do we or do we not allow the Lord to be the one who leads? Do we or do we not fix our eyes on where the presence of God is moving and align ourselves there? Or do we determine, you know what? I think I've got a better route planned. Unfortunately, This is where we often go outside or fail to set up those proverbial fences or guardrails and are so prone to taking a route of our own making. Imagine for a moment, though, the mentality of the people at this time right here. This was a whole new generation. In the book of Numbers, when the people disobey the Lord, he specifically tells them that every person 20 years old and older would die in the wilderness because they disobeyed the Lord. 20 years old and older. Now, here's what's significant about that. Me and my staff were talking about this, dialoguing about this this last week. You could have been 19. You saw what happened at the Red Sea. You saw the unfaithfulness of your parents, those generation that was before you. You wandered in the desert for 40 years. And now you're just shy of 60. And you're right on the banks of the promised land once again. Stop and consider for a moment those who'd been born on the journey, they'd never known anything other than the wilderness. And here they are. One day out. Be prepared. Consecrate yourself. Prepare yourself as holy. Prepare to see God work in a wondrous way. You can almost sense the anticipation. What's going to happen? How is this going to unfold? And the first instruction is you follow where the presence of the Lord leads. Let's see what happens next. Look at verse 14. Jump up to verse 14 of chapter 3. It says, So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water... Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathan. and those flowing down towards the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground and in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Now there's a couple of observations here that we can make. The first one may be something we jump over rather quickly, but it is this. When does the Lord back up the water? It is not until the priest's feet are in the water itself. Now there's a powerful illustration here because it would be easy to consider this overflowing river. And they get to the edge of it and they go, I'm not going in there. It would be easy for the nation of Israel once again to get to the banks of the Jordan River. To see a cross and go, What now? We're here. What are we supposed to do? And it wasn't until the feet of the priests carrying the ark stepped into the water that the Lord worked His miracle. Now here's where this becomes full circle, right? In my own testimony, in my own life, It always seems like in the biggest moments where God shows up the most, he waits to the very last minute to do it. And I hear you chuckle because I know you've experienced this too. Where you're going, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what we're going to do. And in the last moment, God shows up. Here in the narrative of Joshua, the priests step their foot in the water and then this happens. Boom. The water is dammed up, and the city of Adam, just to put it in perspective, is twenty around twenty miles north of where they are at right now. And all the way down to the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea as it says here, the water's cut off, it stops flowing. Now, what's interesting about this is you can actually look up geological research where people explain how this has happened at the Jordan River multiple times throughout history. Multiple dates where earthquakes happen and there's a landslide and it plugs it up, okay? So that's not that hard to comprehend and some people say, well, that's just what happened. But that's not the entire miracle. And this is the other piece that we often miss. Look at verse 17. It says, Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground. In the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. It wasn't simply that the water stopped flowing. If you've ever jumped into a Fulton County creek bed... You know what I'm talking about. And it is just this deep of nasty, mucky, murky mud and sludge. And if you get your boot stuck in it, you might as well just buy a new pair. Right? And here we have the Jordan River and it's described as in the the season of harvest is overflowing its banks. Because of the excess rain in this season. And they're walking across on dry land. Not just a part of them. Some people might say, well, there was millions of people. So, you know, by the time it got to the end of it, I'm sure it was probably dry. That's not what it's talking about. The priests themselves stood on dry ground. And the people crossed over on dry land. ultimately, When they got to the banks of the river, they might have seen the obstacle in front of them. But the people of Israel knew that God is bigger. That's our theme, right? In fact, we need to practice this, okay? So I'm going to count to three. I want you to proudly proclaim this truth, okay? Let's try this. One, two, three. Amen. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 4. We'll see what happens next. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priests' feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men From the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them, that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord had told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up the twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan. <clears throat> so here we have this memorial established. What is this, what is this testifying of? <clears throat> Ultimately, this is revealing and reminding the people of God's faithfulness in this moment. The power of the Lord in this moment to deliver them, to do a miracle before them. But the reason this is to be set up was not just for them. Did you catch that? The reason this is so significant is because the Lord wants to make sure that for generations to come. This nation does not lose sight of what the Lord has done here. Church, we are really prone to forgetting and losing sight of the faithfulness of the Lord when faced with a present day obstacle in front of us. We are really prone to staring at something that looks huge in front of us and forgetting the mountains that have already been moved, not climbed, moved Because our God is bigger. In the same way, the nation of Israel was threatened with forgetting once again what the Lord had done here. In fact, twice it tells them why they set this up. If you look at the end of chapter 4, verses 21 through 24 of chapter 4, it says... That you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now verse 24 there is really significant. Why? Why are they to testify about this? Why are they to tell their children about these things? It's not so that they might be elevated. Whoa, you were there. You were there when God dried up the Jordan River. How cool is that? My grandpa was there. He told me the story. It's not what it's to testify about is to testify so that all, everyone say all, all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. That you, here's the application for Israel, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. That is to recognize that the God you say you serve is the God who can not only dam up the water, but can dry up the ground in a moment. He's the God who can move the mountain. He's the God who can part the Red Sea. He's the God that goes before His people and protects them. He's the God that directs and guides the way all through time. He's the sovereign one, the holy one. He is in control and he is bigger than anything that you have faced or will face in the days to come. That you may fear the Lord your God forever. So the people cross and then something interesting happens. There's two things that take place in chapter 5. Let's look at those starting in verse 1 So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way now some of you are reading this and you come to these sections of the old testament and you go What in the world is going on? What is this talking about? And that's a good question to ask. Why are we talking about circumcision? And We should not only ask this question. We should seek out an answer and the answer is found in genesis 17 in genesis 17 God chooses this way to seal his covenant with his people. It says, This is my covenant. This is God speaking. Which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign. Everyone say sign. It shall be a sign of the covenant or the promise between me and you. This whole Purpose was to be a physical sign and reminder of what God had promised to His people through Abraham. So here you have the fulfillment of major covenantal promise happening as the people enter into the land promised to them. And it makes sense that while they were wandering in the wilderness, this didn't happen. And now the first thing as soon as they cross over is... We're going to fulfill this sign that the Lord established with his people. Now, after this takes place, and the significance of that being that the, these people are set apart from the rest. Look at verse 10. It says, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, Circumcision and the Passover were both reminders of the promise God had made and fulfilled in his people. The Passover was celebrated because when they were in captivity in Egypt, the, the Israelite people were instructed, you need to s- kill the lamb and spread the blood of the lamb over your doorposts so that when the angel of death comes over the land of Egypt, it will skip past your homes. And the lives of your sons, your firstborn sons, will be spared because of the blood of the Lamb. You see the significance? And so here they are for the first time now in the promised land. And they celebrate Passover together as a reminder of what God had already done back in Egypt. A reminder of His faithfulness to fulfill His promises. And yet there's a warning here, church. You see... We recognize from this narrative, this isn't the first time Israel has reached to this point. God is still faithful and will always be faithful to keep his promises, even if it's another generation who receives that promise. If at any point a generation chooses to be unfaithful to the Lord, that doesn't mean the Lord will be unfaithful to his promises. It means that those who choose to walk in disobedience to the Lord will not inherit those promises in their lifetime. So easily we can convince ourselves that I just deserve the promises and the blessings of the Lord. And then we go out and we walk and we live in disobedience and then we come to the Lord and we go, Lord, why aren't you blessing me? Why, aren't, why, why am I not receiving any of what you have said? it's because we often choose to walk in a way contrary to that which God has called us to. Now, I want to clarify something. In no way does Scripture say that if you walk according to what God commands, that you are going to be earthly and physically wealthy and have an abundance. It does not say that, okay? God didn't say that. All right, turn to your neighbor and say, God didn't say that. The Bible does not say that. In fact, it says, for those who claim the name of Jesus, you should expect suffering. You should expect persecution. But the greatest eternal merit is found when we dwell in the commands of the Lord. And here this generation was seen firsthand the fulfillment of God's promises To them. So how do we apply this? What does this look like practically? Because you may be sitting here and going. Matt I get this story. I hear what you're saying. But I still am not putting together. How this applies at all to us. Right here and now as the church. In Fulton County Illinois. The main thing I want you to leave here with. If you get nothing else out of this. I want you to chew on this. Is that true victory can only come through God's leading. True victory can only come God's way. And whatever obstacles you're facing, whatever challenges you're encountering right now as you're sitting here today, the only way for you to have victory over those is if God is leading the way. How does that take place? Well, God is already leading. The question is, where are you fixing your eyes? This visual is perfectly represented by the ark moving far out before the people. Why? Because you don't know the way you're going. You have not been this way before. I don't know about you, but stepping into tomorrow and the next week and the next month and the next year, I don't know where I'm going. I'd like to think I do, but I've learned well enough in the last, really the last ten years. It took me a long time. Okay? That I don't know I can think I know and that's a bad idea because I'm always disappointed right But when god is leading the way and my eyes are fixed on him I know that i'm Staying within the fences that he's provided for me to stay in God leads fix your eyes on him Secondly god makes a way stop focusing on the obstacle This is probably our most common response. When we're in a trial situation, man, that mountain seems huge. Huge! Man, that river seems vast. What am I supposed to do now? Some of you may be feeling that weight right now. You just... Whatever you're looking at in the next week or month or year, and you are just going, oh. And you need to remind yourself that God is the one who makes a way. And if God leads and God makes a way, you fix your eyes on him. Why? Because true victory can only come when God is leading and ultimately, when you're facing that mountain, when you're facing that obstacle, when you're looking at that, you need to be able to remind yourself and remind those around you that God is bigger than that obstacle. So we're going to say this again, okay? I'm going to lead up to this. I'm going to count you count you to three, and I want you to proclaim this, okay? When you're facing that obstacle, you need to remind yourself and remind others that one, two, three, God is bigger. God is bigger. Amen. Thirdly, God sets apart. Trust who God says you are. When the nation of Israel was circumcised and they celebrated the Passover, it was a reminder that God is the one who established His people exactly as He intended to. God is the one who sets them apart. It is God who distinguishes them as His people, not anyone else. The same is true when we come into the New Covenant with Christ, But let me tell you, this phrase can be misleading. Because our culture would like you to say, God sets apart, so you just need to trust who you say you are. No! You need to trust who God says you are. Who God says you are. And the reality is, the first thing God says you are is a wicked, sinful person. Oh, hold the phone, Matt. That wasn't very nice. That's who God says we are. If we are not wicked, sinful people, Jesus came for no reason. Why did Jesus have to come? Because you and I are wicked, sinful people who are more concerned with ourself than we are living in light of the most holy, powerful God. And that started in the Garden of Eden. So when we can recognize who God says we are, then we establish a need. And the need becomes a reality when we realize that Jesus died and rose again so that we didn't have to remain in this wicked, sinful state that we're in right now. But instead, that in Christ, God says you're redeemed. In Christ, God says you're made new. In Christ, God says you're adopted as my children and co-heirs with Christ. That's what Scripture says. And so there's two spectrums here. On the one side, there's all these people who say, I'm a good person. I don't need anything more. I deserve to be in heaven because I'm good more than I'm bad. Wrong! On the other side of the equation, though, is a whole group of people who say, I'm worthless. I don't have any value. I'm, I have nothing to offer. I'm no good. And they just t- deteriorate themselves over and over and over again. Wrong! What God says is you are in desperate need of something you cannot give yourself. And I brought it in Christ. So believe that Jesus paid the price for you. And be welcomed and embraced into my family which is eternal and cannot be taken away. God sets apart. Trust who he says you are. And lastly, God provides. Be consistent in the reminder of his faithfulness. Now this is where I want to intersect with communion today. This is our stones, church. When we're called to do this in remembrance of Jesus, why are we called to do this? Because if we lose sight of what has been done for us in Christ we miss the foundation on which everything else is meant to be built. And the reality is, this is also why families, if you have children who have not surrendered their life to Jesus, you should not be encouraging them to take this. Instead, every time you do and they ask you about it, just as Joshua says, It should be our opportunity to remind them of the story of how God has redeemed us from our sin. In the same way, if you haven't surrendered your life to Christ, this this is not for you. Because you have not yet experienced the transformative work of Jesus in your life. And yet the amazing thing is, you don't have to be a part of the nation of Israel at the River Jordan to experience God's miraculous transforming work and power in you. And so, we pray weekly and long that people would recognize that the gift of life in Christ is available to all. But it will not be received by all. And so as we take this, I want to pause a and I just want us to reflect upon these truths. I want you to reflect upon your own story, the stones and mile markers in your own life and remind yourself of God's faithfulness in the past. And that it's the same God in the present. And when we do this, we remember who he is, that we might leave here fearing God and motivated to share that hope with other people. So let's pause a moment. And then I'm going to prompt us to eat the bread and drink the cup together as we remember the sacrifice of Christ and the life that it has given us through him. Father, in this time, I pray for humility. I pray for moments of confession as we consider how easily we lose sight of what you have given us in Christ. Lord, may you unite us together as one people as we're reminded that mutually we are all in need of the saving grace that is only given to us in Christ and in Christ alone. So as we take this, may we do so as we remember not only the sacrifice of Jesus, but the mission that we're called to. Motivate us, Lord, by this. Renew us in this, I pray, through the name of Jesus. Amen. When Jesus was was with his disciples, he took bread and he broke it and he passed it amongst them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. And we eat this in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice. Let's eat together. In the same way, he took the cup and he passed it around to them. He said, take and drink. This is my Blood which is poured out for you, and we believe it's the blood of Christ that cleanses us from our sin and makes us new. Let's drink this together. Amen. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. We're going to close with this song, and it testifies of God's faithfulness. Even more specifically, it testifies that at no point in time has God ever left us to walk on our own. That He is faithful. He is faithful that we might remember that. Father, will you be glorified as we close this time. May you be the object of our praise. And may we go here ready to proclaim your faithfulness for generations to come. Lord, as long as you give us breath in our lungs, may we proclaim these truths in Jesus' name. Amen.